episode of Deep Dive. I am Rudy Rusica, a senior here at Syracuse University studying health and exercise science on the pre-physical therapy track. I have Dr. John French today. He's a chemistry professor here on campus. He has taught myself, Jack Polano this semester, and the previous semester he taught Freddie Pavlika. All four of us can speak today and get into his mind and see what he thinks about being a professor on campus. So, Professor, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Dr. French, Rudy said, I'm a general chemistry professor here on campus for the last uh, seven years or so. Typically teach general chemistry one and two, both sequences, you know, large lecture classes. I've had probably about six or 8,000 students in the last seven years. So, and these are three of them right here. Wow. The three best. Yeah. So like, where are you from and where'd you go to school? So yeah, like Jack and Freddie, I grew up in the North Country. So about two hours uh, north of here, actually much closer to the Canadian border. That's probably usually where we would go as opposed to somewhere like Syracuse. So small rural school. And after that, I went to St. Lawrence University, where I was a chemistry major, really interested in chemistry, really interested in science. Where's that university at? So that's also about two hours north of here, Canton, New York. I took a medicinal chemistry class, a pharmacology class toward my junior year and really got interested in basically how you can design drugs, right? So chemists can build structure. And so really found that really interesting of like how you can design and develop this drug and know where it binds, what receptor. So from that, I kind of got interested more in chemistry, uh, got a master's degree in forensic science, which was a little bit out of the way to really realize that it was more chemistry that I was interested in. So after that, decided to go get a PhD in chemistry, focused on a lot of methodology. So how to build structure, how to build molecules, developing new reactions, new catalysts. After that, a postdoc at University of Delaware, in the chemical engineering department. So basically developing self-healing polymer networks. So you've always used probably like a rubber band that's broken at some point in your life, right? So what, if, and what would happen if you had polymers that could heal themselves? And so that rubber band, you know, would never break. After that, worked in industry for a few years. And then this job here at Syracuse opened up. And I was fortunate enough to get hired and be a teaching faculty here now at Syracuse after that. When you were in Delaware, did you like want to come back or just kind of have? Uh, yeah, my, my wife is from Buffalo. I'm from Northern New York. So Syracuse was kind of a good place to go because it's like two hours from both of our families. So it was kind of nice in the middle. I did like Delaware. Delaware was really nice. It would snow maybe once. Like that was kind of nice to get out of the snow. So the weather was definitely a plus for Delaware. There's a lot of industry in Delaware. But for our family, you know, Syracuse was a good home base between both my parents and my wife's family as well on top of that does it feel like for example like freddie and jack both from the area does it make you feel like you have more in common with the people like you have you can understand them and relate to them a little more oh definitely i I think uh, both jack and freddie would know growing up in the north country it's much different uh, than even syracuse and we're two hours away i mean it's it's a very rural area a lot of farmers a lot of just open land i remember people, friends of mine from college that like, that was the first time they saw a cow, like going to the <laughs> North country. And like, that was something we grew up with every day. And also like friends from larger cities being like, you know, what do you do in the North country? I'm like, what didn't we do? Like growing up, you could go outside and do anything. Uh, and so, no, I, I really enjoyed that experience. And I really think it, yeah, kind of binds you together because there's 
so few things going on. Like you really, it's a, I guess, a unique experience growing up in that area. And it kind of gives you a neat, unique perspective, you know, being that close to Canada, being in an area where there's not a really big population density. Uh, you know, we certainly know the schools of that area. When I told my dad, he wanted me to tell you, like, he played for Edwards Knox. Uh, and so he, he dropped, I think, like 47 points he wanted to say on your basketball team, like way back in the 60s. So yeah, he was uh, like, make sure you let them know that. The perishable basketball team has never been super, super hot. No, they've always been terrible. We've had like probably the worst basketball team in the entire district, like as long as I can remember. <laughs> Jack and Fred, does uh mean anything to you when you guys have a best Jack group sort of near you guys? It's just kind of a cool thing to... um Bring us together, you know. The, you just the say common, no, it doesn't matter if you want. Well, no, I think uh, growing up in such a small area, whenever we move outside of that area, we ask around. Uh, I think one of the first things, you know, being in the military, you always ask when you get to a new new unit, where are you from? You know, you ask that around just, you know, in hopes of finding someone from your area and then saying, oh, I'm from New York. It's always New York City. New York's, no, no, no. There's way, way up north. There's a little small part we call the North Country kind of hard to describe it's like the south but you know it's like the country in the south but it's in new york like oh wow never never knew about that so when you find a professor you know like dr french who you know oh you're from governor yeah. from governor slightly bigger than where we're from but still in the same area it's just kind of a cool connection to make i thought it was it was pretty cool to me because kind of like Jack was saying, when you're in the military, it is very rare to find people who like are even familiar with your neck of the woods. You know, it's like you say New York and the automatic assumption is just, okay, New York City. That's it. That's where everyone from New York's from. But realistically, most people don't realize that you can really separate New York into like two states. You have the city and you have everywhere upstate that kind of encompasses central New York and everywhere north of that as well. But to find someone who even goes beyond that, who knows of like your little town who, you know, where we graduated with about Shaq. I think you were like 20 kids. And no, I actually had the bigger one. I think I graduated with 48 or like 54. Uh, we were 40 and we were huge. Is that high school or junior high? It's, it's high school. K through 12. Um, we had our school is kindergarten through 12th grade. So everyone who starts there in kindergarten, unless they move or whatever, they are there in that same school up until they graduate as a senior. Was the same for you? We had two different schools. Yeah, we had an elementary and then middle and high school. And you see that a lot too, because some places will split up. Obviously, you got elementary, middle, and then high school. But usually, the biggest split we see around our area is elementary and high school. Are you saying elementary, one school, and then middle and high school together? Yep. So the same, so same it's like seventh and eighth graders could be with juniors and seniors. Yeah. And that's the difference between our school, because we have kindergartners that are with our 12th graders, same school. So Both are not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, brings like kind of like the closeness of like the whole community, like everyone knows each other. I guess one of the probably more ridiculous things is that everyone there is like related. So the dating scene gets a little complicated. <laughs> but besides that, like the community is very close. And when you meet someone who's like from that general area, especially even like down in Syracuse, like you'd be surprised how many people here like who are from like this area have no idea what's north of this. And so like when I was in Dr. French's class, it was really cool to hear that he was kind of from our nick of the woods. It did kind of like bring a little semblance of like closeness, I guess I would say, um, to us. Or I don't know, just made us feel a little bit like we weren't out of place. Yeah, I mean, you feel more welcoming here. There you go. That's a good 
Yeah, so, you know, one benefit of knowing you guys is that I know the North Country is now. I was watching uh, BoJack Horseman the other day. Fantastic show. I loved it. If you guys haven't watched it, you guys should, I highly recommend it. They were talking about the North Country. I was like, hmm, I know what that means now. I never got that joke if I ever came here. So thank you guys for telling me about New York South. Of course. That's what we're here for. <laughs> Have you watched any recent TV shows? You were like, wow, it's a good show. Thoughts French? I just finished up uh, Better Call Saul, the last of that. So I was a big fan of Breaking Bad and like Better Call Saul was kind of like a spinoff of that. So I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed Breaking Bad. And then other than that, no, I mean, with the semester pretty busy. So just kind of like once that ended, maybe this summer I'll find something, but kind of a limit of what's out there right now. How does a professor prepare for the upcoming semester? I really think organization, you really have to be organized, especially when you have six to 800 students. You know, what's the way I can communicate this? You know, as easy as possible to as many students that I'll only have to say it once or, or twice. So anything I can do to make that easier. So how the class is structured, how I organize that material. And then as opposed to putting it in writing, I can put it in writing and I can also make a video walking through those steps. So basically just organization of the class and then thinking about, you know, how else can I kind of reduce the workload of the semester of those small emails of X, Y, and Z question. How can I get those questions ahead of time? So communicating the material, letting everyone know the structure, where things are, what's, when's, when are things going to be due throughout the semester. So it takes a lot of planning in advance. Interesting. Freddie, since you have a four panels since you've been here, how do you prepare for the semester? How did I prepare for the semester? Yeah. Or any semester going into it? Oof. Uh, I guess I just try to collect, kind of like uh, set my structure about maybe a week or two out. And also does it differ on the classes, like taking like orgo cam, cam, you know, anatomy physiology compared to like some writing class? I think the biggest part of it is just like, it's, it's like a mental preparedness. You just kind of have to build when you go into it because you know, it's going to be fast paced. You know that when you get in, you're going to, you're going to have some difficult days, some difficult weeks. You're going to, especially if you're taking more than one like intensive course, like at a time, you kind of have to be ready for like, okay, to make those sacrifices. Like, okay, like this weekend. I know I have a test like the following week, even if it's the end of the week. So I know basically just being good at like scheduling your time. So it's like I have a bunch of stuff I got to do next week to stay on top of my normal assignments. Yet I have this exam at the end of the week. So I'm going to have to take a little bit of additional time over the weekend, make some sacrifices, probably not go out with friends, do this, that, or the other, and just kind of like hunker down, study, and adequately prepare myself. But for me, I definitely take it to an extreme because I make probably too many sacrifices. And I think for me, it's just kind of like a, it's a fault in like my mindset because I'm just a huge like perfectionist when it comes to like academics. And so I, I do too much. Jack can definitely attest to that. Jack and Freddie are roommates for those who don't know. Jack, can you have any input? Yeah, I guess you can say that, you know, I'm the complete opposite of Freddie. I don't really do any preparation. And I do see him withering away in the books weekend after weekend after weekend. I try to intervene a little bit, give him a break, but he likes, he likes his studying. Actually, I enjoy it too, you know, like, especially when we're in orgo cam, like it's one of those things I can just like kind of hunker down for like six, seven hours at a time. And I could do it without taking breaks if I really wanted to. Like, I just enjoy like learning about those kind of things. So for me, it does make it a little bit easier, but it sometimes does like impact my mental health when I am making so many sacrifices, like my social life and everything as well. But And when he says six to seven hours without a break, that's not an exaggeration. Yeah, I will go all day long if I need to, especially in finals week. You know, I think you hit like the hammer around the nail, like mentally prepared one semester depending on the class like you take like one or two very hard classes you have to mentally like i'm gonna do this and i imagine that kind of deployment like you have to get mental in that headspace where i'm gonna head like i'm gonna tackle this head on and if you're like me you're gonna fail some tests you know if you're like fred you're not gonna fail anything 
But like you have to just keep overcoming and just keep getting after it. And that's the thing too, because it kind of is, like you said, it's, it's very similar. Like when, um, remember when I went my first deployment, I was a fully qualified flight engineer. And if you listen to my other podcast, I think it was the deep dive too, the second one you did, I talked a little bit about kind of what climate is like before deployment, what the expectations are. And it's like, you know, you, you have to be at basically like peak readiness, right? So you have to, like for me, I was dealing with some medical stuff. I brushed everything to the side. I did what we needed to do to basically like um, be able to deploy essentially, you know, like I, I spent extra additional hours, like trying to like help fix the planes that needed to be sent out like the following week that were going to be sent out to Portugal, Italy, Central America, you know, wherever we we're going to go. And then when it came to actually deploying, even though I did not feel good and I was not in the right headspace, you know, you kind of just got to like pull everything together and just hunker down, mentally prepare and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> some, in some cases. You hope for the best. You hope you're going to sick the entire semester. Cause I can't even imagine taking three days off. I don't know how people take mental days off during the semester. Like, I guess that's what I want to do. Like, there's no way. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm already not doing that great in this class. And you want me to take three days off physics or chemistry? Like, there's no way it's happening. There is one thing I will say, though, that I really appreciated about Dr. French when I had him as a professor. Uh, this was summer, what was it, this year's 2023 is 2022 then? Yeah, so summer 2022, I took Gen Chem 1 and 2 over the summer with Professor French. and Which professor, is no easy task, by the way. Oh, no, that was, it was definitely a lot more intensive than I thought it was going to be. And I definitely made it like that for myself. I'm sure Dr. French can probably test with all of my um, remarks and faces during the exams. But uh, regardless, one thing I really appreciated about Dr. French during that time is no matter like how stressful it was, and he even mentioned like right from the get-go, he was like, all right, so, you know, I've been out of school for this long. So if anyone, like sometimes professors, when they're out of school for this long, they forget what it's like to learn the material. And sometimes, you know, we go a little bit too fast or we're using terms that you guys haven't learned yet, but we just assume that you guys know these terms. So if any moment you guys get a little bit confused as to what's going on, say something because someone else probably has the same question. And I don't often see that like in organic chemistry, the expectation was you have to know everything that we're saying. If you get behind, you're behind and you're not going to catch up. That's kind of like the general like atmosphere of like more like, uh, I guess, intensive like chemistry courses like here at SU. But well, most like STEM courses at SU are like that. Yeah. But that's the one thing I really appreciate about Dr. French is like he was very accommodating to the students. He definitely did everything he could to help every single student in his class, like um, achieve greatness, like within his class. I mean, any, if anyone actually went in there with like intention to do well. Dr. French is definitely the person who would steer them in the right direction if they asked for help or even just attended his lectures. Yeah, I think I truly believe what you just said in a, a funny, so, you know, halfway through you had to do like, we're not reading a professor, but like a uh, professor evaluation. Mm -hmm. Jack did a hilarious one. Jack, you want to say what you said? I believe it was along the lines of everything you need to pass the class is handed to you. So you just have to do the, a little bit of work yourself. And if you fail the class, that one's on you. And uh, this is in front of hundreds of students. And there's a very last comment that Dr. French put out there. And he just made a couple jokes about it. What did you, did you know it was Jack? I had no idea that it was Jack. But uh, in retrospect, it kind of makes sense. Because, no, it, it definitely caught me. Like, I think that statement was true. I mean, the, all the resources are there. I'm there willing to help, like Freddie said. I'm understanding that not everyone wants to be a chemistry major. Uh, but I don't believe the class is doable. It's not impossible. But no, that's, that's kind of funny to know that, that it was Jack that made that. Because I think some of the students yeah, in class were definitely laughing when I put that. What else was funny about that? I think the last, the last line, I think, was uh, if you fail the class, that one's on you. Something like that. 
And right next to me, Rudy goes, who the F wrote this? <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I, told him, I told him a few minutes later, it was me. What's your take on uh, Anthony Prosciutto? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Tony? Do you remember Tony? Oh, yeah, I remember Tony. Tony was a character. Uh, <laughs> he, he keeps talking that he was like failing the class. He did not fail the class. He definitely passed the class. No, the, definitely the thing I remember about Tony were two things. Number one, we were having a day in lecture where... I forget, like something happened in the middle of the lecture and like took students a little bit to calm down. And after class, Tony came up to me, who was like fresh out of the Marine Corps. It was like, oh, Dr. French, I'm so sorry. The students weren't respectful today. He's like, if we were in the Marine Corps, we just told them to shut the F up. I'm like, yeah, Tony, like, I, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't say that to students. And the second thing I remember about Tony was probably like one of the things I just didn't know how to handle. We were going over the scientific method and at the time, there were a lot of reports of those UFOs that different Air Force people were seeing and reporting all these UFOs. And so we applied like the scientific method to like a broken light switch or whatever, and how you could figure out if the power is not there or the switch is broken or whatever, whatever. And like I tried to show them how the scientific method you can test and, and see and figure out that problem. And then I applied it to these UFOs. And it gets down to the fact that like you never have anything to test because you don't have any physical object and so i like the whole class i'm like has anyone here seen a ufo expecting no one to raise their hand and doesn't tony raise his hand so i'm like okay this is interesting so yeah tony like what, what do you how when did you see this ufo and so he starts off by saying that he was doing a training exercise on an island that doesn't exist he tells that to the whole class so i'm like okay so there's an island somewhere that the u.s uses that doesn't exist and he and the people that they were training with they saw this UFO, this thing they couldn't explain, and they reported it. And he basically said that they got buried in so much paperwork that he could see another UFO and he would never tell anyone ever again. And so there I am as a professor, like he just told the entire class that I'm like, okay, totally not prepared for like, where do I take a class now? Because someone just told the whole class that they saw this UFO after I was trying to set the whole thing up and that, you know, we have no way of testing this because there's nothing physically that we can go and, and, and test at the end of it. So those are the two stories I remember about Anthony. Yeah. That is such like a fresh out of military like mindset or it is. If I was <laughs> in the Marines, tell him to shut the F up. That is 100%. And yeah. he, he's changed so much since that I had him in, in school. And I, I think it's, it's great. Uh, it's like he said, like Sergeant Rizzuto, and I may be pronouncing his last name wrong, you know, has left campus and that's that's how he treated it. But he's definitely much more involved in campus now. And so I think it's it's great for him, too, because he's he's local. That was fun, too. Like his dad works for Raleigh Steel, a company right here in Syracuse. So blue collar, you know, family to now, you know, he's graduated from Syracuse University and is clearly headed you know, in great direction. Yeah. So you have veteran scholars next to you when you're teaching before talking to any of us or speaking to any of us. Can you tell who's a veteran? I mean, honestly, it's, it's getting harder because, uh, you know, like someone like young kid like Jack, it's really hard to tell. But someone like Raph, I mean, I, know, I knew Raph, you know, was probably a non-traditional student. But for the most part, it's only if, if they, you know, appear a little bit older than your traditional student. But no, I mean, um, you know, someone like Jack, I wouldn't know. I guess probably maybe Freddie looks a little bit older. So that maybe that threw it away, threw it off for him. Well, so it was the military tattoos, just caked. Yeah. Tat and, yeah. So um, in the SVO lounge, just the veteran organization lounge, we, uh, we found that many professors, as soon as we hear, once we tell them we're like student veterans, they immediately drop the veteran part 
Like, like they didn't even phase them. And they just treat us like typical students with no experience out of the classroom. And Rashton brought that up to me. I was like, nah, dude, I don't think so. That's your class. I'm like, wow, this is what it means when a professor actually treats us like people at the subordinate. Like, what makes you different? Yeah, when I read that question, I was kind of, you know, thinking about that because I, I don't feel like I treat, you know, anyone different. So, I mean, hopefully I'm treating all students like they're people because I mean, we're all people. But it really made me wonder, like, yeah, what are other professors doing or how are the professors treating students in their class? Because I kind of hope I'm not treating anyone, you know, any different, whether they're a regular student or a non-traditional student, because we, we all have lives outside of class. We've all done things prior to coming to college. Some people, maybe it's just high school. Some people have worked already a career and then are coming to college. But yeah, I really, when I read that, it got me thinking of like, you know, am I treating a regular student different than a veteran or not? I mean, hopefully I'm just treating you both the same. I'm just treating you like a person because that's what, you know, we're working with. Like I, you know, I don't teach subjects, right? I teach people that material. You don't uh, teach subjects, you teach people. That's pretty good. But like, for example, that's why I asked this question. Like I was taking a Calc 1 and then we're going with derivatives. I'm like, professor needs help. You know, like some of these people nurse in high school and it's been like five years. Like I was in the Navy first. And, and when I said Navy, it's just like blank stare. No idea what that, like if she didn't even know what Navy was, what military was, she didn't give a fuck. I'm like, okay, you just come tutoring, I'll teach you. Or go, go, go learn, like, go study more. And then I was in physics last semester. And we're going, uh, we're going over radioactivity. And we're going over, should you live by a nuclear power plant? I was like, oh, wow, I actually lived on board a nuclear submarine. So I lived right, I just slept, you know, feet away from nuclear power plant. And I thought she would ask more questions. I thought we were going to talk a little bit. Like, nothing I said even phased her. Like, if she missed people every day that sleeps on a nuclear submarine. And, like, if I found, like, a big old, like, fuck you in my forehead or something. I was like, all right, well, have any of you guys had like any experience like that? Oh, yeah. So one of the biggest things for me, I believe, is just like, I feel like there's a lot of professors that come into class uh, with the, they have these preconceived notions of like their students where, I don't know, if they've had bad histories in like previous classes with like just students in general, they kind of like group all students into this one category. And then they, they don't really um, allow for there to be any like outliers or any like any difference among like every individual student. So for me, like I was to give an example, I guess I've been out of school for eight years before I went to college. Now it's been about 10 or 11 years, but the whole time I was in the military, right? So I, I took all my base courses, like chemistry, everything. I never took physics, but I took like chemistry and all my like base courses in high school. But I remember nothing from that, like stats, didn't even take stats, didn't take any higher than pre-calc and coming into it, like relearning, like even just was it like PEMDAS and like all the like very, very. Or Sokotoa. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I was like, guys, I don't have no idea. Just, can you please teach me to learn from high school the first time? Yep. But, <laughs> and then it's like, you know, when you ask these questions, they don't really separate the students based on like experience. They just assume everyone's out of high school. So when you don't get like some of those basic concepts, it's kind of like they look at you different. It's kind of like, they don't have the perception that you shouldn't still know this. You know, it's so like second nature to them. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier is like Dr. French really, really breaks things down. And I really appreciated that because some professors who like have this automatic assumption that everyone's gotten out of high school and should know at least just like the general basics, they're not accounting for people who have taken time off and who have led literally completely different careers where they'd never think about this until they went back into academia. Right. So there were a few definitely like more of like the STEM professors I've had who have 
definitely, I feel like, gains some sort of negative perception on me when I ask like certain simple questions and just the kind of like how they would maybe like blow you up in the classroom for that or like, you know, make little remarks here and there or there's just little like um, things that kind of happen that make you realize it's like, wow, like people like even these like professors, you know, these people who have gone through so much school and got their PhDs, they it's almost like a lack of respect they have for their student body. And I, I, I really had a hard time dealing with that for a while until I obviously now I'm caught up with a lot more of the advanced curriculum and I can keep up. But which is a shame because it means a veteran or anybody not traditional has to like put in the like overload time. I know I go tutoring four times a week outside the classroom. Yeah. And to be honest, if it wasn't for the free tutoring vouchers. It took me two years to find on this campus. They gave me a thousand dollars over the semester for free tutoring. I would never have even like come close to my GPA right now. But it's a, it's a deterrent too, right? Yeah. Because you have these professors that, you know, you, you feel like you're not good enough. Like you don't fit in. And then it takes a while. Like you have to put in so much extra work compared to these kids who have just literally gotten out of high school and they have a decent grasp on these concepts already. And they're just relearning stuff with the addition of a few additional items. Right. So again, for me, um, that was probably the hardest part about transitioning from like military to academia was just basically starting at the bottom of the barrel again. You know, it's like you've already led a full career and now you're right back to the bottom and you have to work your way up again. And for a lot of people, I could see how that'd be daunting because it's like, again, you know, it's like, man, I got to put in so much more work than I thought. Like these professors are already assuming that I have all this knowledge and I don't. So that means either, you know, I either quit now and just try to figure out something else or I'm really going to have to apply myself and just keep pushing through all of the mud, basically. I mean, that's interesting to hear, too, because it's kind of like growth versus fixed mindset. So it kind of sounds like a lot of these faculty, it, it's been shown through research that a lot of faculty do have like a fixed mindset where they do, you know, clump students into groups and basically say, you know, regardless of what I do, 20% are going to fail this class or this group is always yeah. going to struggle with this class. And that's kind of too bad to hear because... You know, I, I kind of think of more of a growth mindset approach of it's it's doable, right? We can always learn something new. It may take a little bit more work, but I mean, it's always capable. You're always capable of learning something new. It might take a little bit more time or a little bit more effort, but it's it's not certainly impossible. And part of it, too, I think maybe Rudy and I, maybe I told you this earlier about how like my uncle, like he used his GI Bill to come to Syracuse University. And so I've heard, you know, his stories of coming here after, you know, two tours in Vietnam and kind of how he was treated on campus. And, he, you know, he kind of shared similar stories of like in, in calculus, how he was treated because he was an older student and they didn't really seem to put two and two together that he was, you know, and one day he told me, you know, he had to tell his professor, like, ma'am, like there's a war going on and that's why I'm older because that's where I was for the last, you know, several years. And even how he was like treated as a student on campus, first year students were like supposed to wear this, this beanie or penny or something. And again, he's an older student, you know, I'm not going to wear that and was caught one day not wearing it. And just kind of, it didn't feel like a very welcoming environment for someone that just spent, you know, two years or do, did two tours of, of duty in Vietnam, was coming back, very proud to be at Syracuse, very proud to like get that degree and use his GI Bill. And so just having heard those stories from him too, and like knowing what it was like for him, like the, what that struggle was like for him. Um, I think maybe it's part of it, too, of knowing that you also have similar experience. That's very interesting. That might be the reason because, you know, some of your family has done that. Can you explain the process of him using GI Bill? Because I thought that was very fascinating. Yeah, 
I guess I don't know if it's changed. I forgot to look this up. So well, after, now this is like guaranteed for us now after yeah, a couple years in. He had to take a test to be able to use his GI Bill. And it was right here on campus in one of the gymnasiums. And he I still remember when I was growing up, he would give me these questions of, of like what was on the test. Like he still remembers those questions that were on the test. So he he did the test, took the test, got in, was able to use his GI Bill. And like I said, he was very proud that he was able to get through calculus, was able to get through the courses, graduated, got a job. And the first day on the job, his boss was younger than him and was giving him orders. And he was basically like, listen, like I've taken orders the last eight years of my life. Like I'm done taking orders. Like I quit. (laughs) And he built a spec house and basically made a career out of being a, a developer and basically taught himself how to build, build houses. And that's, that's what he did. I, you know, I'm always kind of amazed to think about what that would be like to like take this test, knowing that there's limited spots of, of who can go use that GI bill, but it's something he was, he's still very proud of to this day of doing that, getting the degree, even if he didn't use it. You have any comments on the test? So I think that's crazy. The- like it's come out in the military after years and use this, take this test. And if you're smart enough, even though you have, like we just said, we didn't do anything academics for the past few years. And he came from Vietnam, which I'm sure he went through hell and back there. Take this test and you might be good enough for the school. If that was today, half the GI Bill students wouldn't be here. So I feel like too, like more recently, there's been a huge kind of like reforms going on from like the transition of active duty to veteran, because maybe you heard of uh, for the 22 or like, um, I think it's 22 veterans that essentially like kill themselves every day. Mm-hmm. There's been huge movements yeah. trying to like reduce that number and try to like alleviate some of the tensions of like transitioning over to the civilian world. And everything that you say kind of like demonstrates that it's like you get out of the military, you know, right when you get in, you're getting orders from someone who you may be older than or is just barely older than you. And they've only gotten to that position by making rank, which may not be very applicable to their actual, their stature and the military, you know, they, they may not have actually really earned that. They just ranked up because of like maybe some other like factors that have gone into it. And so sometimes those people are your leaders and you have very bad leadership in a lot of cases, the military, then you transition out in the civilian world. You're a little bit older. You're a little bit more experienced, a little more knowledge, knowledgeable. You've done a lot more than people really realize initially. And then what happens is you start getting orders again from like these people in the civilian sector that have their education and who are above you like in the hierarchical like framework of society and yeah you know it does kind of take you back a few notches because it's like you know you busted your ass doing this like entire career for however many years you were in and then you get out and it just automatically switches and it almost in a way seems like i don't want to say it's less it doesn't matter as much. I don't want to say like it doesn't like what you're doing out in the civilian side doesn't matter as much, but I feel like the perspective, the general perspective is, is when you get out and now you're taking orders from someone else or you doing whatever you are, it's like, it's hard to disconnect like everything you've done in the military in such a broader scale to now you're doing something on a smaller scale, yet you're being treated like the bottom of the barrel again. And after everything you put in, you just kind of like start feeling like you deserve maybe a little bit more. You deserve maybe a little bit more respect for even the things that people can't see. You know, and not saying that's the right mindset to have when you get out, because obviously it's two different, completely different lifestyles. But that is just like kind of what I've noticed from a lot of people like veterans who, because I've known a lot of people that have gotten out and, you know, me, when I went through like in the IVES system, I, I got out with a lot of people who lost arms, who lost like limbs and stuff like that. And, you know, them trying to like regain their footing in society just almost seems like an impossible task after they've just taken such emotional, mental, or even physical toll. 
And those people who don't have that kind of like mental resilience to really bounce back and don't have the support of the VA or even the military anymore, like those are the ones that you really have to worry about in life because they're the ones who often are unstable. They don't have as much help. They don't have as much of like a, like a fam familial background to like kind of like support them either. In my opinion, though, that's the reason why, you know, the number of like veteran suicides is so high every year because that transition is just not as robust as it probably should be. There's more that they can do. They definitely done a lot better, again, since when he went back to college and everything and just automatically being allowed to use GI Bill, but even being on campus, you know, like when I got here, I felt completely out of place. I mean, I am almost 30 years old and I was a freshman when I started college. You know, it's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta do this again with like all these kids and they gotta suck it up and just, you know, this, this is my place. And you kind of justify that by like, oh, well, this is like an $80,000 a year institution and we're getting it completely free. You know, there, there's ways to justify it for sure and step ahead in the financial aspect. But even still, it's sometimes a hard pill to swallow is, and I, I guess I just can't really emphasize that enough is like right when you get out, you know, you could be like a high ranking, like person in the military giving orders. And then you're right back to learning, to taking orders, to being the bottom of the barrel again. And after all that you've kind of worked through and fought through to get that stature, like within the actual government system, you now have to do that in a completely different society. Really. Yeah, no, I, I think there needs to be more overlap between the two. I mean, I recently I was reading an article about how we have the shortage of EMTs. And they listed in that article that you could be a military trained medic. And in the state of New York, you're not certified to be an EMT. I was. Which is so, just yeah. crazy to me to think that our military, we pride ourselves in our military and how our military trains people. You could be trained to be a medic in the military. And what a, like, what a nice transition to come out of the military. If you were a medic, go be an EMT while you transition to something else. And you're not even like, how does that not even carry over? So I, I think there, yeah, there needs to be a lot better of like, how can we transition or find overlap between training that you received or let that training that you received count for something, you know, outside of the military structure. And that was like the big thing too. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm taking up a lot of time, but I just have one more point to make on this. I went through a, it was a one-year course. That was the equivalent of like a four-year engineering degree when I was in the military. Uh, that was my flight engineer schooling. I got nearly zero credits coming out of the military for that. And then when I transitioned over to the corpsman field, I got some college credits for going through like the medic courses and stuff like that. Like you said, there was no carryover. So like if you're in the army or the air force or something and you go over uh, into like the medic field, like in the air force, you can challenge the EMT exam in the state, depending on the state. In the army, there's an LPN program where you can actually get your LPN license, I believe. In the Navy, we got nothing. So in the Navy, you go through core school, you do, we have probably one of the more rigorous medic programs because um, we do like a lot of shipboard stuff, tactical combat casualty care and like other things. We come out with absolutely nothing. Uh, we can only work under the DOD providers um, license to practice medicine, which means we can do anything in the military facility that they'll allow us to do. Some places will let us put it in a chest tube. Other places won't even let us place an IV. But when you get out, there's no carryover. We can't challenge any exams or anything, really. We have to take the full course and do our due diligence to basically do the entire process over again, even yeah. though we've already done it for no credentialing. Yeah. So. so instead of like setting you up ahead, it's, it's kind of, you get out and you're starting back from square one. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is, it is a different style of like, you know, medicine, I guess. But even still. So that's French. You heard, a, you heard a multiple podcasts where these two fine gentlemen has told some of the stories from being in the Middle East and helicopters and doing a kind of crazy stuff to traveling the world on a helicopter and 
doing everything he did to me driving a submarine in the ocean. And do you ever think like these people did these crazy things in their life before academics, like Freddie said, and now we're here trying to learn the difference between like asses and bases and cognitive bases. Like, is so ever like, man, I'm teaching these people who, but maybe I'm not saying we get to teach you anything, but like who we lived a whole another life before this. Does it ever like shock you a little bit? I mean, you still haven't told me how deep a submarine can go. So I'm just <laughs> um, no, I mean, yeah, I do learn from you as well. I mean, we've talked about a number of things of being on a nuclear submarine and, and thinking about that. And so it's kind of surprising too that, you know, as you're learning nuclear physics, I guess, that the professor didn't want to ask about your experience on a nuclear submarine. So I, yeah, right. I think that'd be pretty interesting of, again, like what you learned there, there has to be some carryover to, you know, learning about nuclear decay or radioactive decay being on a nuclear sub. No, it really is interesting to hear, especially, you know, how, I guess, kind of challenging some of the environments where you were in. I mean, not not Jack, obviously. It sounded like he had a pretty nice... <laughs> There's palaces everywhere. Yeah, pretty nice time with air conditioning. But no, yeah, it really is surprising to hear of, of uh, you know, like what you've, what you've been through, what you've been asked to do. And yeah, I, I always think it is interesting to learn, um, you know, kind of some of that experience. And so, you know, we've talked about things like how does a submarine dispose of its waste? Which, <laughs> yeah. you know, crazy things like that that I never really thought about until I'm talking with someone that lived on a nuclear submarine or thinking about, you know, what is it like to be under sea for 70 days and not like smell fresh air or see the sun or have like fresh food, you know, whenever you wanted it. So, yeah, it really is kind of surprising to think about what that, uh, you know, would be like, especially, you know, as an 18, 19, 20 year old with people in the same age right now in your class, right? Totally like much less responsible responsibilities, uh, you know, total opposite end of the spectrum of what you were going through versus like what they're going through now in college. You know, you, uh, it's funny, like, uh, just recap a little bit. You talked about how like my physics professor, we do talk about uranium. And I was like, oh man, you ran to 35 on my summary. Yeah. Like nothing. They didn't even phase her. Like, oh man, all right, I'm just gonna give up here. I'm just gonna walk out. One of the coolest things, we were on Zoom. It was the Zoom year. I had uh, this guy named Cody. I think he was Air Force. Jack, Cody Jackson. Jackson. Yeah, he, he does. Look, he would look like a lot like you. Yeah, That's what I've been saying. Person. They speak exactly the same as well. And they're, only, they're the only two Air Force guys I know on this campus. And they act and everything the same. So Cody, we're doing gas laws or something. And Cody's like, why, why would they use argon or nitrogen? And they're both inert gases. And he was like, yeah, we'd have to load these onto these missiles. He's like, why would we use those gases? And I'm like, well, Cody, I don't like 100% know, but I'm going to guess it's like something to do with the infrared detector on these heat-seeking missiles. So I was like, now we had our five-minute break in the middle of class. So I'm like Googling. And yeah, we sat there for like 10 minutes and everyone learned how like heat-seeking missiles worked and that basically like these gases were for the IR detector so that the plane doesn't detect itself or the jet doesn't detect itself. The missile doesn't detect the plane that it's being shot from. So yeah, like things like that were really cool because I also learned how heat-seeking missiles were. But, like everyone <laughs> in class was like so engrossed and like, oh wow, like this is what we're going to talk about right now. And it all came from like a random question that that Cody had, and like he was like, yeah, I would load these on all the time, and we would do reloads, and he had no idea like what they were being used for, or why he was loading them. But when he saw those gases, he was like, oh, like I've used these gases. Why would I do this? And so that that was kind of interesting. I had another student that flew um the uh like the reaper drones and i guess somewhere in there so like when they when they you know crash overseas they need to be um like destroyed 
And so he was asking me about some of the radioactive components in there. And so it's kind of interesting. I've learned things I didn't know existed uh, or that you had to worry about, you know, through having military students in class. You know, uh, so we talked, you said something about responsibility at such a young age. And I remember when I first met you, like the first month I met you, you may not remember this because of a few years ago. We talked about, man, like sometimes I get annoyed, like some of these 18, 19, 20 year olds are like nothing compared to we, the responsibility we had that age. And I was wondering, like, do you guys ever think that in your classes? Like, man, when I was 20 or I was 19, like, I was worrying about, like, uh, 300 measures in the summer just in case we get shot at. And I learned how to, like, learn how to do every, not do, but, like, understand the basic concepts of every single machine on the submarine. And you had to do everything, you learn everything on the helicopter. And you had to learn how to be in an air conditioner palace. So I was like, like, do you guys ever think of that? I do. I honestly think it's like, I think it's just, you know, different paths in life. So realistically for us, yes, like right out the gate, we were exposed to multi-million dollar equipment that we were in charge of like maintaining, fixing and flying, you know, and, you know, kids who go to college, they have other responsibilities, you know, if, if they don't come from like a very like wealthy or financially stable background, then these kids really have to do a lot of budgeting, they have to get their finances in order. And it's a lot of other like real world applicable skills that we didn't necessarily have to worry about because we being in the military we only really had to worry about our primary mission, right? We had to work because we, you know, obviously we had our own like um, family lives. If you were married or you had your own like personal lives, you could go and buy a car or do whatever. But for the most part, the military is going to put you in barracks or they're going to give you BH and you're going to move out. You have one W-2 for tax season. Well, that's nice. it. So nice, exactly, yeah. exactly. You don't have to worry about all these other like tax forms and everything like that. Budgeting is as easy as, okay, you know, you got to buy groceries. You know, you have to figure out what you're going to do with your stuff when you deploy, like those kind of things. But for kids here, like I do respect like a lot of these kids because it's something I wouldn't have been able to do out of high school. I really wouldn't have. If I went to college right out of high school, I'd have blown all my money and I wouldn't know what I was doing. I probably would have failed out of college and ended up joining the military anyways at a certain point. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the students who can actually do it and apply themselves in a way to be successful, like right out of high school and to college and establish their independence like that quickly. To me, I actually have a lot of respect for that because it's not something that we've had any exposure to or anything that we've really had to do. On the other hand of things, yes, we have had like probably more intensive careers where we're doing more like real world applicable things that are you would consider like a greater purpose in the scope of like the USS placement in the world. However, again, I think it's all perception at that point because, you know, different people have different priorities. They have different values. And in the end of the day, I don't think you can discount any of the hard work that anyone's really done. So I try not to look at like other students as being like lesser or not having the same kind of experience because they're just dealing with different things that we didn't have to at that age. We're older in general. So obviously we have a few different perceptions and we probably have a little bit more maturity to us that allows us to carry ourselves in a certain way that puts us, I guess, not ahead, but just... I don't know, a little bit further along our path than they are. But even still, I try not to dichotomize a situation where these students are inherently way behind us and we're like way more advanced and we're like way further in front of like where they are in life. Because I just think they're dealing with different pressures and they're in different points of... Because even though they may not have that direct experience that we have like within the military, they have these other strengths that we can also, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from. Um, especially just, you know, since we've always kind of been coddled by the government and we're learning how to live by ourselves in a way that's independent. I think the additional experience we have doesn't necessarily put us on, you know, the first place pedestal compared to other students. 
I think there are a lot of students who just come here and fit the role of what we have in mind of what, you know, Syracuse college students are. But then again, there are students that, you know, I'll see in class, then I'll go see working another job and me doing the same classes, same coursework. I'll sit there and think, how are they working? Like, where do they, where are they getting this extra time and how, and then going to class. And I respect that a lot. And it helps me as a student, seeing other students work harder than me. That makes me want to work hard. So I, I respect, I respect the grind of those students. Cool. So, Dr. Uh, French, what are your thoughts on ChatGPT? So, I, th- I think it would be great if I could have that integrated into my email and they could just like answer <laughs> student emails that I don't want to answer. <laughs> it would save me a lot of time. No, I think it's, it goes both ways. Like, I think it can help remove some of the, you know, the mind-numbing tasks that we have to do on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, like I've used it to help structure letters of recommendation, and I think that does a great job of like you get inundated by like 40 or 50 requests and you can take the student. So you're saying we shouldn't ask you for one? No. Be I, like your 50 seconds? No, no, no. I mean, them from students that you know and you've interacted with, that's no problem. I also get them from students that literally like I would have to go to the grade book and look them up and, and like, you know, I've never talked Being to this person that. once. So it makes it really hard to write a letter, right? Kind of does a really good job of like revamping or freshening up, freshening up a letter, I'd like to give you that structure or format that I'll go back in and, and retool and add things to. So in that sense, like I've kind of found it helpful. Hopefully it doesn't get me in trouble. And on the other end, though, I think it can be dangerous too, because like it can do very simple tasks. And so like, for example, if you're learning to code and you're taking like, you know, an intro coding class here, ChatGTP could do your homework for you, which is kind of dangerous because you do need to learn the basics, right? Can't do your 400 level homework, but it could do the intro level homework. You have to learn the basics so that you can apply and build on that later. I've played around with quite a bit of it for chemistry as well, and it can answer some very simple, like multiple choice questions. But it was interesting. Like I was able, like it would do the calculation correctly, but couldn't balance an equation. So it used an unbalanced equation and did the calculation with it. So it ended up getting a wrong answer. So sure, it can answer some very simple things, but at the same time, you also do need to learn those very simple things so that you can build upon it, especially in general chemistry, right? It's a foundational course. You're building the, you know, you're digging the foundation that you're going to build upon after that. So we need to understand that material to build on that later on. So in that regard, I think it can be, uh, you know, a little bit dangerous. I have plugged in some questions to it, and, and maybe it does help in a way, depending on how you use it, because it'll give you, you know, instead of you going to the textbook and searching for that and reading those paragraphs, it'll give you, you know, three or four good paragraphs to help maybe understand the question you plugged in. So it kind of does that searching for you if you're less inclined to use the textbook. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see like where it goes, because I th- certainly think it can help with some of the lower level tasks that we have to do a large number of, but at the same time, you also need to understand, you know, certain components of that material so that you can build upon it later on. Jack, you had the award-winning smile while he was speaking. Do you have any comments on it? No, I heard something similar. I think a lawyer was talking about ChatGPT, about some of like using it and how it is beneficial for like those minor tasks throughout the day that kind of like that don't take a lot of effort, but they take a lot of time that could be spent doing other things on the like bigger projects. Just kind of that pro con list of, of chat GBT. I wasn't smiling for any other reason. Yeah. Cause Jack and I actually know a guy that's traveling to Oregon. He's transferring to schools. You know, we try to convince him not to, but he's following his love weather. And ChatGPT actually created the whole route for him and where to stop at hotels every like night. And that won't deter him from the route. Cause I thought that was pretty interesting. 
I'm going to use that for my Texas trip. Yeah, yeah. Just use Dr. French's login so you never get in trouble later. Yeah. Well, it's just trip, right? That's not an academic yeah. integrity thing, right? That's yeah. <laughs> used to plan a trip. Uh, I do have one question. Do you mind if I ask a question? Yeah, there's curious to what Dr. French thinks about this. Have you been watching the news and like Elon lately and his views on chat GPT? Yeah, no, I mean, I think a picture yesterday of, right, the Pentagon getting bombed and the stock market lost, what, like $500 billion in seconds all over a fake picture that had the blue verified check mark. So that's where I I mean, I think it's going to be really dangerous because, I mean, when I was in high school, right, I was in high school, a senior when 9-11 happened, we were watching that real and you knew that was happening and that was real. I think it gets really dangerous when now you're like able to show things like these these deep fakes as well that people are taking that as real and you're going to start to question what is real and, and what is, what isn't. It's going to get uh you know harder and there's going to be mistakes that are made or happen. You know what what would happen if it was thrown out that another country did that and something was was done militarily all over a fake photo. So yeah, I think that's going to kind of scary to think about. Because you never know anyone's intentions. Like they might think it's really funny, but to the rest of us, that's not that's not very funny. So no, I, I think it it's it's something to worry about, and it is something that's that can be pretty scary. Could be pretty scary. What about like the the sentience concept of like AI? Is that is that something that's a little bit too like was it paradoxical, or is that something that's kind of like you, you could see being like an actual um, issue in the future? Has anyone ever here read Ender's Game at all? I think I did read it and I watched, there was a movie. Well, I saw, there was I saw a movie. movie. I didn't watch the movie, but it, it kind of reminds me because there is like a sentient, like being like that. That's kind of like what, like the worldwide, like what the web could turn into. And I'm still kind of wondering too, because like, for example, if you apply it to chemistry, sure, you can use AI to like generate a route for a molecule to how to synthesize a molecule using chemistry that's like already been established. But where you would need us is to develop some new root and new chemistry that like hasn't been developed, right? Because it's it's searching like the literature that's there and, and using that precedence to like figure out how to make a really complex molecule. So, you know, will it be able to make that jump and totally be able to figure out something brand new that that isn't based on information that we've already established in the literature? You know, that I don't I don't know. I'm just waiting for Arnold Schwarzenegger to come back and, you know, come back yeah. in time and just wipe us all out. Or Iron Man to develop a time travel with AI. Yeah. Something like that. Jarvis. Jarvis, yeah. Jarvis. By your expression, I'm going to say you never seen Avengers. Never seen Avengers. Okay. Podcast uh, over. It's too late. It's too late now. <laughs> He's got about <laughs> 38 movies to watch. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just watched them all in order, like, at the end of the semester. So, are you for AI? Just max it out see what we could do with it or are you more like we should be a little timid on the way there make some laws so isn't it too like crazy I, just, I think it's interesting when industries out there saying like we don't need to be regulated and we'll regulate ourselves i mean i think we've shown enough times so that that's not a good mix when industry decides their own regulations whether it's you know social media or whether it's ai whether it's the chemical industry right um, you know the clean air and water act is there for a reason right the epa is there for a reason so i i Definitely view that there should be some guardrails put in place sooner than later, because otherwise what happens is it gets out of control and then we're trying to 
dial it back down. So yeah, I think there needs there should be more regulation in deciding who's who's doing what where. I mean, so something similar was was CRISPR, right? So CRISPR allows you to do gene editing. So who decides, you know, what we can edit the genes of and what what genes are we editing? Are we going to edit, you know, we could all agree that if someone had cancer or a family history of cancer, that maybe editing that gene, you know, we could agree that that would be a gene worth editing in someone. But who's to say we want to be, you know, six and a half feet tall. We want to be, you know, have blonde hair and want to start editing all these other genes of like unborn babies. So I, I feel like there needs to be a regulation on on how we're using that technology. Well, if everyone wants to come out like Jack, I think they'll be pretty happy. Perfect six foot. So there was this movie a few years ago about a company that made the non-skid, non-stick on the pans. And, you know, some chemists came up yeah, with that. DuPont. Yeah. And where they were making it, they just kind of flush all the residue. In yeah, the, in the river. yeah, and it totally destroyed that whole town. So you think that's like... I mean, there's an example, right? Yeah, but like in chemistry, like it's so good. The people are so intelligent coming to these awesome things makes our day-to-day life so easy. Because like sometimes we shouldn't have a day-to-day life so easy because there's so much repercussions. Because the, the way it's set up right now, even though we do have the EPA and the Clean Air and Water Act, it is not up to the chemical company um, the, the burden is not on them to show something is harmful. It's up to the EPA. So for Teflon, Teflon is a billion dollar a year you know, product for DuPont. They, you need a surfactant when you're making that polymer. So PFOA, polyfluorooctanoic acid, is, is used as that surfactant. And that's the forever chemical that's everywhere, right? So 3M, 3M said, we're not going to make this chemical anymore because we realized right, that it's not good. It doesn't break down. DuPont said, okay, we'll just keep making it. And yeah, it ended up in the water. So you're, you're talking of, uh, I think it was down like Virginia or West Virginia, it ended up in the water. It's, it's in the water everywhere. Down in Hoosick Falls, there was a Teflon plant that's outside of Albany. It's in the water there. So, so basically, you know, what one lawyer made it his job for 20 years to fight DuPont because DuPont, right, they have the money, they have the lawyers, they have it on their side. So for 20 years, they kept making this chemical. They kept making and releasing PFOA because, again, the burden was not on them to show it was causing harm. So you can go and make any, you know, even though we do have the EPA, you can go and make any new chemical you want. And as long as that structure isn't regulated, right, it's you can go and use that chemical. And the Hulk doing everything, saving the world to saving the cities. Have you, have you seen the movie? What movie is this now? <laughs> So the movie of the whole, they made a whole movie about this. Oh, the, the water. Yeah. 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 The, the same character, the Hope, is a lawyer. I read, I read the, there's a really good New York Times article about it. So I forget what I was going to say. Damn it, Rudy. But you know, it's very interesting. You said like how not, you make a new dream or a new polymer uh, is not, it's not like regulated. It sounds something I learned from the Barber Club here at Syracuse University. Uh, you talked about how when a new protein come out or, yeah, so like it's, now, it's not regulated. It's, it's yeah. Same thing. So it's kind of they regulate crazy. the structure, right? So, oh, this is what I was going to say. So, you know, you want to talk about like crack versus cocaine. They are one is the salt and one is the free base. They're the same compound, but like in our judicial system, right? They're treated differently. So, from a chemist standpoint, it doesn't really make sense because one's the sodium salt of the other, right? Chemically, they're the same thing. So that's, you know, one of the way to get around the supplements is, okay, we're going to ban, let's say, if I wanted to use caffeine as an example, let's say we're going to ban caffeine, they ban that structure. You could modify that structure and it might still have a stimulant effect, 
And that's fine until they come out again and test this structure and say, oh, okay, this also has a stimulant effect. So we're going to ban this structure as well. So yeah, you're kind of like playing whack-a-mole of you might knock out this. Okay, we're going to find something else that does the same thing. So like fentanyl, we're going to crack down on fentanyl. Now I'm going to use xylazine instead because it's getting harder to make and find fentanyl. So it's kind of moving things around to kind of fit what gives you the same effect, but is a different structure chemically. I've got got just something I want to... I'm just curious because you you are definitely more organic chemistry based, correct? Okay. So I'm just going to throw out a few terms. You just you just let me know what they mean to you. Okay. And these are more, I think, they're trade names. Definitely terms of Freddy. Can you do like one of those games, like the rapid fire games? You term, then first word that comes to your mind. Just like, here we go. Okay. Equipoise. Trendalone. I mean, if these are all, these are all like steroids. Or, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Trambolone's got to be steroids. They're all oh, like yeah. Nandrolone. Um, yeah, Nandrolone. You got that one, Super Droll, Deca, Dianable. Deca, yeah. Yeah. So the one thing about those is I kind of feel like it's almost in the same wheelhouse because you have like when these came, Equipoise, for instance, is a horse steroid. The ones, the horses that run track races and stuff like that. They'll give them to horses so that have increased boost their endurance. I want to say like increases their hemoglobin hematocrit levels and allows them to like just have Kind of like, uh, who is it that has like abnormal? Oh, Lance Armstrong. Yeah, Lance Armstrong. He was what doping. Yeah, doping. Yeah. It's basically it's kind of like that, but it also has like an anabolic effect on the horse as well. So bodybuilders thought it was a good idea to start using it in themselves because it's like, oh, it works in horses. It'll work on me. What is your take on basically like this whole new back market of pharmaceuticals that are being sold underground, like like these substances that the FDA is basically deemed unsafe for humans? But yet you have these underground chemists that are making a living by creating these compounds and selling them illegally on the dark web. And now I would say like in today's society, especially with, are you familiar with SARMs, Mm -hmm. selective androgenic receptor modulators? They're becoming so huge and such a prominent issue in today's society that these kids, like we in sports psychology, we learned that there's like 14 year old girls that are taking these to get a competitive edge in sports. And somehow they're getting these hands on them because of the accessibility through the internet. You don't even have to go like to any sort of specific dark web page. You can just type in Nandrolone. Probably type it into chat GPT and yeah. find a place yeah. to buy it. So what, buy what, do you, what do you think about these kind of like regulations and like how people are like getting them? What do you think like would be a possible solution? Sorry, I'm just curious. I know you're the interviewer, but I'm just, I'm very no, no curious. Yeah, no, I think it's scary because you think, so number one, right? A chemist is making these. It could be out of the country too. It could be, you know, from China or from Russia. Most of it's from China. Right. Mm-hmm. What's the quality control in the lab where it's being made, right? You're taking something and you're trusting that the person on the other end of that is following like the same quality control procedures of a pharmaceutical company here in America, for example, where things are tested and the purity is the purity that they're telling you it's going to be. So you're taking into account that it is the exact compound that they say it is. It's the purity they say it is and that the impurities there aren't, aren't going to hurt. So that, that kind of worries me because there's no regulation on that aspect of it because it's not going through any of the government control. Number two, these things work on a really, really small scale, right? So there was a female track athlete who just tested positive two winters ago, um, Shelby Houlihan. And we're talking about like nanogram quantities of nandrolone, right? That's a tiny amount of this, but it's at that nanogram level that this is able to change your body. I mean, so yes, we can detect nanogram levels, which is right parts per billion. That's three seconds in a century. That's how small of amount that is, but that's all the amount that you need to change your body. So you're 
your body's already, especially at that age, like 14, 15, 16, your body's already ramping up with the natural hormones your body's making. And now you're going to add something into that mix. And so I think that is kind of concerning. So for example, they thought Lance Armstrong, so he had testicular cancer earlier in his career in the early nineties, mid nineties, he was known as a sprinter. He was not the Lance Armstrong we know of today. He was a much heavier cyclist. And they were th- they thought he, well, he, he used anabolic steroids when he was a sprinter because it helped you build that muscle mass and that speed. They think it's those anabolic steroids that he was on that gave him the testicular cancer later on. So you don't know what this is, this is going to do to you, especially if you take it for a long period of time, because if it's, it's you know, endogenous, your body's making it. If it's uh, not endogenous, Basically, the other thing, too, that happens is it offloads that work for your body because your body's going to say, why am I going to make this hormone if all of a sudden there's all this extra hormone coming in? So it can actually decrease right, your natural hormones that your body produces so that when you come off of that, right, your body's going to be in this lag now of like, where did all of this go? So it does kind of concern me of how trusting some people are in material they find, you know, because not everyone has the best intentions. You know, these chemists, they're who knows what lab they're working in, what it looks like, what the quality control is on these products that people are buying to, to make a competitive edge. So I need to backpedal just a little bit too, because I, I just threw out China. I shouldn't have just thrown out China like that. But they are one of the biggest like main distributors of like Oxandrolone and like some of the other kind of like well-known like pharmaceutical substances that you can get. Like Oxandrolone, for instance, I'm sure you you know, it's been used in like a medicinal setting. It's been used for like burn victims and stuff like that to help like the recovery process. It's a very non-androgenic like anabolic steroid that women will sometimes use for like competition that's how like weak it really is compared to something like trenbolone or something a lot more um uh, prominent however i we do know that like because in a lot of the european nations like these anabolic steroids are legal like people are able to purchase them but i still think most of most of these compounds are being produced in like a like a back back market lab or a black market lab somewhere my question is then like because going through OrgoChem, like creating all these like molecular structures and like I've seen like the structure of like testosterone, like all these things, like very cheap ones that probably be a little bit more easier to synthesize. But then you get into like the really complex ones that are very purposely designed for certain like say androgen receptors might be the right word to use where they can bind the androgen receptors and have like all sorts of different effects throughout the body. How easy would it be to mess up the synthesis of one of those compounds and create like a bad batch that's then basically devastating whoever purchases that batch? Like how easy would it be in a non-regulated facility to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I'm saying that that's the concern comes in because there's always side reactions and you don't know, you know, how carefully are they purifying this? So is this 99.9% pure or is this 75% pure? I don't know what the other 25% is that I'm injecting into my body. So with any chemistry, there's always going to be a side reaction. So it just depends on, I guess, how careful they are in purifying that away. In the mid 90s, there was an example of all of these really young kids coming in in California. They were coming in with uh, really heavy late stage like Parkinson's symptoms. And uh, they basically traced it back to someone that was making MDMA, so me- ec- ecstasy. And there was this side product in the reaction that was in the ecstasy. They take the ecstasy, that material crossed the blood brain barrier barrier got metabolized and couldn't get out. So basically like gunked up their brain permanently. So Parkinson's right. You have an inability to control motion. Yeah. 
And it's usually like it gets worse as you age. So you see they were coming in 20-year-olds with symptoms of like 60-year-olds that had the Parkinson's disease. And it was because they're taking a, you know, a drug that, again, is not regulated and is you know, the quality. There's no quality control there. And here was a side a compound, a side reaction that had formed uh, that, you know, had deleterious effects on their on the rest of their health of their life. Um, one more quick thing about Shelby Houlihan that's that's kind of interesting, too, is like when it came out that she tested positive again. People can't understand like what nanogram quantities are, and I'm, I'm a big runner, so a bunch of my friends were like, "All we're you too know, dumb." Every, everybody's like, "Oh, Shelby's free, Shelby. She's innocent. She's innocent." And I'm like, well, "Just wait, because if it's made in your body, there's one ratio of carbon 12 to carbon 13 because we're alive and we're eating things that are alive right now. If it's made in a lab, it's using carbon that's derived from oil and." you know, oil in the ground, that's millions of years old. So there's a different carbon 12 to carbon 13 ratio because that oil is, is millions of years old and that carbon is millions of years old. And sure enough, you know, a few weeks after she tested positive, they were able to get the carbon 12 to carbon 13 ratio to say that this had to be synthetic. You know, it had the wrong ratio of those two isotopes of carbon. And even though she said, you know, she ate a tainted burrito or something like that, <laughs> um, you know, the carbon 13 ratio was there to show you, no, this, this was man-made. You know, it was not something that was in your body naturally. So there are ways you can test around it too, even if it is a natural, you know, hormone, something that should be in your body naturally. Well, there's people too, like, I'm sure people, I'm sure you guys probably heard the whole finasteride thing where there's these athletes are popping for like, I don't know, they have high levels of like the hydrotestosterone and like the conversion that finasteride will take to actually inhibit like the DHT, like in the hair follicles, prevent hair loss that a lot of athletes do take has been causing them to have elevated DHT levels. And that's what they're blaming for popping for steroids. And like you said, actually, that makes a whole lot of sense how they could get around like, okay, they're not looking straight at DHT levels. They're like testosterone levels. They're looking at other like factors that'll go into like mm-hmm. exogenous forms of like chemicals being introduced yeah. in the body. But basically, okay, so the, the biggest reason why I wanted to bring this up, and I'm so sorry, I get very passionate about yeah, these kind of things. STEM podcast here. No, this, this has everything to do with veterans, and I'll explain why. Not only veterans, but active duty. And this is a huge thing. This is a huge problem I saw in deployments. Whenever people deploy, they will buy whatever steroid they can and inject themselves the entire deployment without knowing anything of what they're doing, anything about the place that was manufactured. And these people will have phenomenal results, lots of side effects. Don't get me wrong. Like you can tell, they got nosebleeds in the gym. They... Uh, Acne is crazy. You can already see like the hair loss, like starting, like you, you can tell like, there's a lot of people like on deployments that will go under these like very, very harsh steroid cycles and come out of it and completely fuck themselves up for the rest of their lives. Pardon my French. Veterans have a similar mindset. I've even met a few when they get out, they, they, they still want to dabble and experiment because again, when you're in, in the military and you're deployed, you have financial security, you're getting money like per diem, whatever shit pay to be able to First afford it. There's one baby. Exactly. It's guaranteed. You're secured. You have that and you have nothing else to do. So what are you going to do? You're going to work out. You're going to work. You're going to take some steroids to make your workouts more effective. So many people I saw even tried pushing it on me when I was younger. I've just seen such like devastating effects from that coming up. And I'm still seeing people that are now experimenting with these newer, more robust pharmaceuticals and have no idea what they do in the body. They have no idea where they come from. They're just doing a Google search. I want this compound, buy it out, comes to their house, bam, they start injecting themselves. And being again, as a corpsman, I actually saw when I was uh, working at the hospital, Walter Reed in the Navy still, I saw this one guy that was in liver failure from taking SARMs. 
I've seen people that, yeah, basically are on the edge of their life because of some of these products basically gone wrong. And so that's the reason why I really wanted to bring it up is just kind of to raise a little bit of awareness among veteran communities that these are not safe. These are not things that you should be taking. And if you do take them, you should be taking them with the utmost knowledge as you can really attain and look for the safest sources and really only do it in like very, very specialized circumstances. If you're just very dedicated to like competing or something like that. And even in that case, no, that's going to take probably years off of your life at the very least. And that's kind of like, that's been my whole perception. I've had a lot of hormonal issues throughout my life with my brain tumor and everything. So I've had to learn a lot of this and in, in doing so I've learned some really scary facts as well. And so I just, I just wanted to bring it up, see what your perception was, because again, I do think it's very applicable to a lot of even like our friends that we know on campus that probably are more silent about it, but still might listen to this podcast and might make them think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be taking this. You know, it's definitely scary to me to hear that because yeah, it's something that's totally unregulated and in, you're taking it in an uncontrolled environment. And everyone wants that. They want that quick, like, I want that, all right, to have, you know, be able to bench that or, or be able to do that squat. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, you, you are going to be doing something that could potentially change, you know, your life forever. I think another good example of that, performance enhancing drugs. So in the 1996 Olympics, they asked a bunch of Olympic athletes. And again, these are people, they're not just like everyday people. They're people that have spent their whole life training. And they were asked if they were given, uh, if they were you know, given a drug that would guarantee they were going to win gold, but would take 10 years off their life, would they do it? And 80% of them said yes. Oh, I remember that. I read and that. just insane to me to think about, but these are people that have like trained their whole life for this moment. And that, that gold medal means so much, but the average person, like, yeah, I'm an athlete, I'm competitive, but okay, you want me to trade like 10 years of my life for, you know, this one gold medal? Like, it's pretty insane to think about like how some people view that and are willing to do, you know, anything. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's, it's kind of scary too. Like you're putting a lot of trust, a lot of faith in someone else that you've never even met, right? You're buying and it is what it says it is. And it's the concentration that it says it is. And you're going to use that in an uncontrolled manner. So I, I do think they should kind of do some more due diligence and maybe, okay, I can make that same gain and that same accomplishment, maybe not in six weeks, but in six months or a year, or, you know, you can still get there. It just might take a lot longer, but you're going to get there in a natural way. That's not going to have the same long-term consequences on your health. So during a sports psychology class and the question came up was, should they just allow performance enhancing drugs to professional athletes? And Jack, what were you on? What side were you on? I was on the side, no. No? Just a quick answer, why? Is it worth it? I mean, maybe for the athletes, I think that would bring in um, you know, a quicker, faster game would probably bring in more money, more money to the athletes. But then drilling out the big picture, if it takes, you know, it's not sustainable for your entire life. And if viewers wanted to watch that, which is build and build and build and build on something that's not sustainable. So I, don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't support that. Even if just only professional athletes and it's regulated and, you know, all the laws in place. You want Josh no, Adams, I freak, imagine him on drugs. Oh yeah. You know, what is the saying? You've never seen gorilla on testosterone. So imagine how much, <laughs> you know, they could, they could bench press or be you know uncaged but uh no but then then again it's it kind of takes away from you know every single professional athlete was a young kid at 1.2 looking up to other professional athletes trying to get to that point i see you're natural when you're a young kid so then knowing that you'd have to put your body through and all that stuff it would be diminishing and he said i'm not here to support that i, I like sports how it is now fred I lean, as a number one 220 pounder in syracuse the city i uh, i lean more against it but i also see the potential benefits for allowing it and may seem a little bit counterintuitive but in my eyes if you were to like 
let's say, kind of like in powerlifting and bodybuilding, you have tested and untested divisions, right? If you were to kind of like make some form of uh, distinction between like people who are competitive athletes that are artificially enhanced and those who are natural in different leagues, and I feel like it would give viewers like an alternative kind of like if they want to see how far the human body can be pushed by these people who are willingly putting these things in their body, albeit regulated, not only is it going to offer another form of entertainment to see like literally how far can we even genetically enhance like a human body, but I also think it would uh, promote like better regulation practices from like industries to be putting out good products because if you have these professional athletes, one of them dies from like this, this company's like product, no one's probably going to go back to them. It's going to be all over the mainstream media and bam, you know, that injury is going to go under and maybe it allow the FDA to go in and I don't know, reschedule. It'd be a whole like complex process of them, like trying to come to terms with how we would make that work. And honestly, in powerlifting and bodybuilding, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because obviously all these, all these things are illegal here. Right. But people still take them and they still have untested divisions. So how do you actually cross that barrier of allowing tested and untested divisions? And on top of that, making it legal for these athletes to be taking these compounds. In my eyes, what would have to be what would have to happen is you'd have to have a much more a robust system in place for like the manufacturing of these drugs. But you'd also have to do it like if, if it was going to be like ethical under like a physician supervision the entire time where labs are being drawn, they're looking at markers like liver enzymes and everything like that and much more controlled. And not only that, but I think it's going to bring a more kind of um, mainstream, I wouldn't say an appeal to steroids, but I think that it would also emphasize the dangers because you're going to see a lot of athletes that are like having like health issues at this point too. They're willingly doing this even under physician supervision. But, you know, hair loss, you're going to see like a lot of these side effects. People are going to be like women are going to become much more masculine. And I think in a way it can act as not only a deterrent for like normal populations, but it will also act as kind of like a reinforcement for people who are competitive, who are going to take them to do it in the right, correct manner, because now it's going to be more mainstream. They're going to be able to see how these professional athletes are able to cycle these you need a lot of money. But if you're willing to do it, you should do it right and do it under physician supervision. And then maybe that will kind of help spark yeah. some better regulation practices. That, I'm on the fence about it, and I lean more towards not than I would be. But those are the potential benefits that I might be able to see over like an extended period of time, approaching in probably like decades or even centuries from now. I think I'm leaning towards for it. Like you said, if it's super like regulated and everything takes, everybody takes the same amount, and they have two different leagues. I'm just seeing Josh Allen already throws like, 70 yards, imagine throwing like a 100 yard bomb to the receiver, first play of the game. Fuck, that'd be crazy. Everybody watched that. I don't watch a normal one anymore. Not the French. I would say no, kind of what, what Jack said. Like, I think imagine that 12, 14, 16 year old kid who's seeing that and okay, thinking like, I have to go do this now if I want to perform at that level. And at that age, like, you were already doped on natural hormones already. And so if you start taking something that's non natural, it's going to forever change your body, like how your body's going to respond and produce its own hormones. So it could totally change, you know, your growth trajectory for the rest of your life. So in that regard, I'd be afraid because, yeah, I, I know how you're, it's going to bring more exposure to it, but I think it, that could also be bad in that it's, you get more people thinking, okay, this is what I have to do to get to that level. And so, uh, yeah, sure. If you want to make a, a league kind of like the XFL or whatever. on XFL like, on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, to watch the rock, man, rock endorses it. Hey, the rock is natural. All right. <laughs> the other thing too is like, yeah, just like, like uh, even so to go back to like Lance Armstrong, he was a great candidate for EPO because 
basically like he could perform really high at his base level. And so anything on top of that, what I'm trying to say is like, we could take the same dose. I'm not guaranteed to have the same effect, right? Like it might have a result for me. So even if you have everybody in this league taking the same dose of whatever supplements, it's not going to have the same result on everyone. Everyone's body's going to respond a little bit differently based on your natural, uh, you know, metabolic background. So it could make some people even better. It could, some people might even just be the same, you know, might not get the same boost just based on where their baseline level is. So we talked a lot about like genetics and just different steroids and whatnot and putting in our body. I learned in your class that a scientist worked for a decade on MRA and she never got any love from the STEM field. But now that COVID came in and all her decade of work went to play in the vaccine and uh, people were so timid because they're like, how do you make a vaccine so fast? But if they just knew scientists were working on this for years, it just did not, the average person doesn't you know, reach STEM. What are your thoughts on people being timid or like forever timid about taking the vaccine or boosters? I mean, kind of in light of what we were talking about in terms of you know these non-regulated steroids. Yeah. On the other end, here's something that has been regulated. Yes, it was tested. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was 20 years of research on mRNA. It was 20 years of research on these lipid nanoparticles that were used to encapsulate the mRNA. And it was, I understand people being hesitant because it was new. It was the first time a vaccine like that had been used and it was used on scale, but it was based on basically 20 years of of research that no one really cared about for 20 years because mRNA was never thought to be a good candidate because it's easily hydrolyzed, doesn't really have a good bioavailability. So that's where the lipid nanoparticles, basically the shell that protected that mRNA was also a second but separate component of that delivery vesicle that the research into that was just as important. And so no, I mean, I understand people are going to be hesitant to anything new but at the same time, I also want to think back to like, what, what was it like in like 1918 when they had the Spanish flu and, you know, millions of people were dying. If you offered them a choice of, okay, you have a chance to die from this or potentially not have to get sick at all. I'm really curious to see what the, what the split would be back then, because I, I certainly feel like a lot of this has come up along, um, you know, political lines of we want to believe what is true and what isn't true. When at the end of the day, like science is science, like we're we're looking at the data. We're not deciding this is what's true and this is what's not true. We're like, we're looking at the data and saying, okay, this is what the data, you know, this is what the results show through rigorous testing of that. We're not just deciding, okay, everyone's going to get this because this is what we think is the best thing. So it, it is surprising, but at the same time, you know, growing up in the North country, it's also not surprising because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's this little microcosm of, know it's its own self in the north country where yeah a lot of people up there were very hesitant to get the vaccine for whatever reason so maybe part of it too is is education i guess people's backgrounds and understanding that when science makes a change right we're not like changing our opinion right we have a new piece of information we have a new fact to consider when we make a change in a statement about what we think is the best course of action it's it's through that process and not just like we decided to change one day and decide what was the best for everyone. So no, it is it is kind of a little bit shocking when people kind of laugh it off or think it's not necessary. Like there was a lot of work, a lot of people's lives were saved through that, you know, as well. A lot of people are still here today because that vaccine was made available. It really makes me wonder, you know, about what goes into someone's head, I guess, when they think about what what to trust and what to believe when they're making these decisions for themselves. Well, Jack, true scholar here, Syracuse University. Do you have any comments on people's doubts of the vaccine or why people were kind of timid? 
I mean, my best guess would just be the media and where they get their news. I don't think a lot of people are doing their own independent research on the topic. I think... Were you no, too mad at all to take it? Well, I was forced to take it. Yeah, but you never like, hmm, you never just thought about it? Well, I just- thought about why I was being, as a you know young, healthy 20, I think I was 22 at the time. Did it really cross my mind as, oh, this is, I believe, enough not to get it, try to get it waived or you know take it discharge? No, I really didn't mind a whole lot. Same thing with coming to Syracuse, we had to get the booster. Did I mind getting it? No. Did it really kind of question the, I guess, the research behind, um, I think one of the big arguments was natural immunity. Like if you got it beforehand, and then why would you need a booster or get on the vaccines? I thought that was interesting to read about, but again, it didn't really apply to me because I have, you know, the two shots and a booster uh, and I've had COVID two times. So Very mild. Yeah, I had COVID a few times already. Would you get a booster again if it become required like on a yearly basis? I think that all depends if, well, to go to university or just to get it? Just to get it. Like they're like, how do you recommend you get it every year? Just uh, it's like a few shots. I would probably talk to my primary care, you know, get their opinion. I'd, you know, judging on where it's going now, I don't think it's going to turn into that. Uh, but if I ever did, I would probably, obviously I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not, you know, Dr. French. I don't have the mind of understanding what goes on. I can see you judging every time you speak. <laughs> but I mean, I think I would like to think I'm smart enough to get other people's inputs that are much smarter than me. So would I say yes, I would take a booster right now? Probably not. But I would first consult my primary care physician um, and get their input. All right. So uh, to Fred, I know when you first met, you had a lot of input about the vaccine. Please tell us your thoughts. I actually, I don't know a ton about the vaccine itself. I haven't independently like gone out and looked at like the different studies that have really came out. I more kind of know the uh, political arena of like how everything kind of like happened. And there's a lot of like uh, distastefulness that kind of happened like from the beginning of the pandemic until the vaccinations became mandatory. I think where, where I pretty much stand on everything is we have kind of like a different history, right? We joined the military and we had to be forced to take all these different things, penicillin shot, peanut butter shot, like all these different immunizations that we needed. I already took a penicillin more than once. Yeah. So (laughs) anyways, so yeah, you know, we needed to do a lot of stuff and that's just kind of like second nature. We didn't really question it. We did it because we needed to do it and we didn't really care. I kind of had a similar mindset with the COVID vaccine, but there was a lot of hesitation on my end. And I think it was because of the political figures that were peddling it more or less than the actual like research behind it. Because there was like they definitely, definitely they've even like came out later and said like, yes, we we didn't actually know exactly like how this was going to work. But that's kind of like science, you know, like these things you don't always you can't account for like all all the different like things that are going to happen when these things are introduced on like a massive scale. So it's like, okay, yeah, you had the vaccine. Initially, it was supposed to eradicate the entire virus, right? There were there were like people coming out saying like, okay, you know, if you take this, you won't get COVID. And then later they flip flop and they're like, okay, you'll take this and you might get both COVID, but a lessened severity. And later it was even kind of shown to have nothing to do with like lessening the severity, but people still argue it does. People still argue it doesn't. It's a whole freaking thing, right? So personally, me, like looking into like the science of it and Dr. French, you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but the mRNA uh, vaccine, from my understanding, is essentially like through the transcription process, you have like the mRNA strands. You're essentially skipping that process of like the DNA transcription. We're going right to translation and you're creating a protein that's supposed to essentially like affect the immune system in a way that's going to lessen the effects of the virus or kill the virus. Yeah, immune response to the actual virus. 
So in that regard, yeah, everything makes sense. I haven't, again, read the studies and I don't know, when did they start doing like the in vivo human like experiments for this? Were they doing that over that 20 year period before they put it out? Exactly. So we had no idea how this was going to actually affect humans when it was a mass protocol. It's like everyone needs to get this virus. Everyone needs to get this. Everyone needs to get this. They didn't know what it was going to be, but they made it sound like it was going to be incredibly safe. And that's where I think a lot of people started having a lot of hesitation around it was because we needed something. People were dying. We were isolated. Our economy was drastically dropped, like um, drastically uh, going downhill. It was like, what can we do? And um, I mean, the mRNA vaccine was definitely the best thing that we had at the time. But I just think how it was publicized and how like it was kind of like forced and people lost their jobs for not taking it was the wrong approach. I understand why they did it, but it's that's 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 what breeds conspiracy theories. That's what that's literally like forcing populations to do something like on a philosophical level. I feel like people don't like that. If they don't understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. You know, they're being told this. But previous few administrations that we've had, look at the Trump administration. I'd say probably like 80 percent of Americans would not have trusted him if he came out publicly and said, like, you need to take this or even anyone that he put like on his council to like say, like to promote it, like hydroxychloroquine, that whole thing. When Trump came out and he started like preaching that. It's like all these different things are coming out. How do we know what to believe? Most people in the world are not these like top level scientists that can just say, oh, yeah, this might work. This is try it. You know, like, I don't know. I just personally feel that it was probably it had good intentions from like a scientific standpoint. But the political standpoint definitely blew it out of proportion and made it more of like a, uh, a skin, scary phenomenon with a worldwide pandemic looming like in the midst of all of this. And I, we saw all the conspiracy theories that came out of it and we saw like all the, the different issues and like people like combating the initial things that were stated because they ended up getting COVID after they took it. So personally for me, I, I would probably never take it again. I've taken it three times now, but I've gotten COVID and I only got COVID after I took it. Never had it before that. Severity of COVID sucked. I was literally bedridden. I almost like called that, like I almost went to a hospital one day because I was so sick and glad it didn't. So it's fine. You got caught like three times already, right? Yeah, I got it a lot. So for me, like, I don't know, maybe for some people, you never know, like, like the steroid conversation. Some people, it's going to affect and put them at like a super physiological level. Other people, it may have no effect. You know, maybe it's something like that. I don't know, again, if you can attest to that, Dr. French, but I felt like with the lack of like in vivo representation, like through studies and also through like just the forcible nature of like the, our, our politicians, not even our scientists, our politicians saying that we need to flatten the curve and we need to take this if we're going to eradicate the virus and basically putting down everyone who didn't take it, making them seem like they were all the bad guys, just bred like controversy, like through the entire world. And I just don't think it was the right way to do it personally, but. You know, there was certainly a lot of mixed messaging. I mean, certainly at one point, right, we could all just take Clorox and that would yeah. rid us of, you know, being alive and the virus as well. But yes, there wasn't 20 years of research on the, the COVID-19 mRNA, but there was 20 years of research as using mRNA because, right, a traditional vaccine uses like a damaged form of the virus, right? A form of the virus that can't you know, get you sick. And that's where this was kind of unique in that instead of giving you COVID, it's going to give you the mRNA to make the spike protein. Your body makes, takes that mRNA, processes, right, tra translates it into the spike protein. Your body recognizes that's foreign, makes the antibody against that. So yes, in terms of like, specifically looking at the COVID-19 mRNA for 20 years, no, but we do know how mRNA is handled in the body. And yeah, I mean, generally, no scientist would want to work on, you know, project warp speed, right? We would rather have like a longer time scale to get things ready. I 
think they were doing the best that they could given the environment, right? That's the first time in a hundred years we've uh, had to go through something like that and prepare for something like that. And yeah, yeah, we were, you know, stuck at home. We were on Zoom. People were, you know, a thousand people a day were dying from it. So we did something to kind of help protect. And yeah, you can still, you can get the vaccine and still get COVID. You can get the flu shot and still get the flu. It just depends on how your body responds to that. It just depends on the strain of the flu that's circulating. Because again, the spike protein that you took, right, there were multiple versions, variants of COVID that came out. So one thing that does help though, is if anytime someone gets infected with COVID, right, the virus doesn't have the same error-proof reading mechanisms that our, our body does, our cells, our DNA does. And so so anytime a, a, vac- a virus is replicating, it's making mistakes. And some of those mutations are deleterious and they make it less, you know, less of a potent virus. Some of those mutations are advantageous, advantageous and are making it more potent virus. So I guess the other idea, too, is behind getting more people vaccinated, you're giving that virus fewer chances to replicate and you're giving it fewer chances to come up with a new strain that's maybe more potent than something that was out previously. I've got a counter to that as well, as I always, I guess, do. Look at gonorrhea, for instance, right? We got <laughs> penicillin and we have these, I forget what the actual name, like the gonorrhea, like infectious like bacteria is, but I know that it's became resistant to like penicillin and some of our top, like, uh, we're like in our fourth stream of penicillin, aren't we? Yeah. We're right. I think I learned that in your class. There's a lot of, a lot of different antibiotics that are available. Yeah. Basically they're becoming resistant to antibiotics on like yeah. a grand scale. And eventually like the thought is that antibiotics are going to essentially not become not be worthwhile to like use for gonorrhea anymore we're gonna have to find a new like approach to actually treat and cure this disease well same thing i think if you have enough mutations with like a virus like within the body i feel like viruses are more robust in their ability to kind of like actually like multiply and mutate is that a correct assumption i mean bacteria are doing the same thing right same that's thing the, that's the that's the reason why if you have a bacterial infection i'll just talk about bacteria in general because i don't know why we have to talk about gonorrhea but um <laughs> i just said that just because it was the yeah because you, you should take the full 10 days of that antibiotic because you're trying to rid your body you're not going to kill all of them right the ones that are left behind are going to be the ones that withstood the treatment and you're right yeah that is a uh, one area of concern are these antibiotic resistant bacteria because it's basically it's a selection process and you're taking that antibiotic you're selecting for bacteria that can withstand the antibiotic so what's left at the end of that 10-day treatment are they are more resistant to that bacteria like you said with the flu right because you're taking essentially like a weakened version of the actual virus right when you put that when you put that in your body it's supposed to stimulate like an immune response is it the long-term immunity that lasts yeah. like years like essentially following the infection right yeah. but like you said there's a ton of different strains of like the flu variant that we have to literally scientists are going through each year and they're like okay what are the more prominent strains or variants that are out this year and those are the ones that get put in the actual flu Hmm. the flu shot for that year well is it going to be similar like is that how it's going to end up being with covid because i see like although it's a different mechanism like you're still using you're using rna versus the active live version of the virus create those antibodies well if they keep mutating and they keep changing i mean obviously those antibodies are not going to be as robust as they were when the virus initially came out so are we going to have to keep changing the vaccine year by year as these new variants are coming out yeah it would be just like the flu vaccine every year there would be a new flu vaccine and moderna right now is working on an mrna based so you'd like be a two-in-one like Moderna, a COVID and flu vaccine that you would just take once both based on the mRNA. And you're, you're correct. It's not always going to be a 
100% match, but it might be close enough. And for all of us here, right, we're young, we're healthy. It's probably not as big of a concern, but if you're in the older population or if you already have compromised immunity, maybe that is enough to keep you out of the hospital or keep you from getting you know, extremely sick. You already got sick. You know, maybe if you were 60 years old instead, maybe that could have been detrimental like that, that bout with COVID. So it, it is going to be a little bit different for everyone. And we're just doing our best to guess. Yeah. What, what strain should we be protected from? And that's, you know, if there is another booster in the fall, they're going to do analysis of kind of see what COVID is circulating in the population. What strain should we use um, for that updated vaccine? What about, sorry, I got one last mm-hmm. thing. Last, last, absolute last thing I want to ask. Natural immunity versus the actual vaccine. Because there, again, there was a push. And it didn't matter if you'd had the virus, you're still expected to get the vaccine at a certain point. And it had been established and determined, I want to say, I don't remember who the scientists were. And again, I didn't read the studies, but I'm pretty sure there was a study that came out saying essentially natural immunity was more of a robust means of preventing the virus than taking the vaccine itself. So oh, you had from Joe Rogan. Was it Joe Rogan? <laughs> Might have been. I don't yeah, know. Some way it's like a horse pills. Or I mean, it was all over the place. I mean, I read it in news articles. I probably saw it on Joe Rogan. But like someone who's in their 40s who got the virus, should they have been mandated to then get the vaccine after they received, after they had the virus? Like, is that? I mean, this is why I'm not in politics, right? Like, it's, yeah, you're you're going to come up with all these unique circumstances where you have that's right, in it's your just, corner right there. Is it's just, just questions. It's just easier, right, to make a blanket statement of, as opposed to like find the instances of this person needs it, this person doesn't, because then you're going to have to go, okay, who had proof that they had COVID? And so I think just for the nation to respond, like it was the best way to handle it of like, regardless if you've had COVID before or not, uh, you know, to get the vaccine, even if, you know, like I said, maybe the natural immunity was better already because you certainly that natural immune response. You spiked your antibody levels much higher. Your body's going to remember that from a lot much longer than maybe taking a vaccine. You didn't have much of a reaction to. So I just think the government was trying to do the best thing that they could do at the time was making everyone take it, even if you had COVID or not, or if you were in great shape or not. It's just across the board was the easiest thing to do, even though, yes, we're in a democracy and not an authoritarian government. We're looking um, like getting managed to get the booster like a week after you had COVID here. I thought that was ridiculous. But it, was, it was like, it was literally the week after I had COVID. Yeah. <laughs> booster. So we made fun of Jack a few times on this podcast, but in all reality, there's some really cool things in the Air Force. There's in the FARP team, if you don't know what that is, like me, you have to Google it. And it ended up being pretty cool. And he came up with this awesome idea uh, bring in questions or comments from Raymond Professor about Dr. French. So he's going to talk about a few. Go ahead, Jack. Just as a preface, this was actually my idea. If I ever <laughs> made my own podcast, it was going to be about professors getting together and, and reading Rate My Professor comments and responding to those. So I only pulled up the bad comments, which I will say the majority are great. Got a 5.3 out of 5. I don't know how that's, how that's uh, possible. Like these kids coming out of high school so, have these GPAs of like 101 you know, out of 100. <laughs> I don't know how that... These are the... the by far outlier comments, but I, I kind of think that as a professor, you kind of like a like a professional goalie in soccer or hockey. Like you take the bad comments, just kind of maybe maybe learn from them like slightly, but then just forget about them. Is that is that kind of accurate? I mean, I think I talked about it in in class. I think it was like 2018 or 2019. You know, someone posted that I only cared about like three of my students, and I made the mistake. Oh, Stu, right here, baby. Of uh, yeah, putting that comment on the projector. And I was just like, if you're this student, like, I am sorry, like, truly, I'm sorry. Like, if you're this student, please reach out to me. Like, I'm here to help. I'm sorry, you feel like I only care about three of the students. And that was kind of a bad thing to do. Because the class thought it was hilarious. But I think it really pissed off that student, because then they went on and added a bunch of other 
really negative comments, but I was just trying to communicate to them of like, I'm sorry you feel like it's, it's a big class, right? It's hard to teach 250 people who are all coming from different backgrounds, AP chem, chem four years ago, chem eight years ago, very little chemistry, uh, all the same material, all the same class. We've got people that are pre-health, people that are pre-PT, nutrition, engineering, right? They're taking it for different reasons. So it's hard to reach everyone and make everyone happy. But at the same time, like I just felt bad that there was like someone that felt like I didn't care about them at all. I mean, I have six to 800 students. And I can't go to your door every night and make sure you're getting your homework done. But if you want to reach out to me, certainly well, yeah, I'll sit down for. with you, you know, in office hours and help you as best I can. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a slippery slope when I opened that up in class one year. All right. Well, I'm just going to read off three comments I found. So get your opinion on this. Please. So the first one is um, prevents presents useless information and tests you on things that aren't even in lecture. What are your, what are your thoughts? These are from, this is from 2019. I mean, it's a, it's a foundational class. We're going to cover a lot of material. Not everything might be, you know, applicable to your major. And kind of what I think about it as, I think of like, uh, for analogy for this podcast, right? Uh, how many of you had to do push-ups in basic training? Yeah, you know, I was. How many wars or battles were won using a push-up? <laughs> <laughs> None of them, right? <laughs> But you had to go through that. You had to do that, right? That was the foundational that they went and built on. And so the same thing with general chemistry. There's a lot of information. Maybe not all of it's as important as the other information, but we had to go through that. We had to do that so that we could build on that and go from there and also learn, you know, that that in the case of your experience, the discipline of, of going through that treatment and how you learn from that. So yes, maybe not everything is as important and maybe, you know, differentiate the 90 to the 95 percentile students i'll throw in a few questions that maybe weren't exactly from lecture material but that kind of separates you know your a your a minus students at that point those questions want to keep uh, freddy up at night <laughs> <laughs> all right we're on to the second one so we got difficult tests impossible homework and lectures don't help avoid him at all costs and this one really I feel like comes out of left field. And it's one of those where I just feel like I want to just talk to the student as a person, because I feel like, especially in the spring semester, you know, I'm going to show you, these are the calculations we're going to do. And you can expect to see these same calculations, whether it's pH or equilibrium, you know, you're going to see the same calculation. The numbers might be different, right? The pH might be different. The concentration might be different, but the steps are the same, right? So you can't just look at it and memorize, okay, this is how I answer this specific question. We have to understand, okay, this is, if I get a concentration, this is how I can convert it to a pH. If I get a pH, I can, this is how I convert it to a concentration. It doesn't matter what acid it is or what concentration it is. The steps are the same. So they, they're, maybe they're looking at it too closely and just trying to memorize, okay, when I see this question, I need to memorize this specific thing, kind of glossing over what's important or instead the steps to go from, you know, A to B to C to D. All right. The last one, I think this one's pretty funny. <laughs> Before you start, can you guess? It has the grades on there, right? What that they uh, what, the what grade in? they got? Yeah. Only if they put it in. Do any of them have it? No, not for these. But also in, in the big picture, there was only like three or four. No, really, I was just like, see if, bad if, comments. If they were, they could like have them guess their grade. Oh, I'm gonna guess they're probably not well. <laughs> <laughs> they probably would suck it. Given this, this the first sentence in this uh, in this review is. Dr. French takes pride in his students not doing well in class. 
What? I don't recommend taking his class whatsoever. His exams are nearly impossible, no matter how much you study the materials. He gives you the study guide that he provides, but it's still hard to do well on his exams. Yeah, I mean, why would I? I felt this at the start of class too. I mean, why would I start a class thinking, you know, I have to fail 20% of the class? I mean, people think this class is a weed out class and it's there just to knock out a certain percentage of students that are going pre-med or whatever. You know, what professor would want to start a class thinking this is a weed out class and I need to fail, you know, X number? If that was the case, you could just end the class day one and I could just say, okay, 20% come back next semester. The rest of you go on to the next semester of chemistry. So no, I mean, I don't set out to fail students, right? What professor would want to set out a course of my goal at the end of the day is to fail you in this class and prove that I know more than you. What, what do I gain from that? Organic um, chemistry professors. <laughs> just yeah, I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so no, I mean, why would I want to start a semester thinking my goal is to out trick you, to outsmart you, to show you, you know, how much more than you that I know. My, my goal is to get you from A to B, right? At the end of the day, my goal is to get you onto PT school or onto med school, right? Not to show you how little general chemistry you know, because at the end of the day, right? Like my wife is a physician. She had to take general chemistry. Today, she couldn't tell you where carbon is in the periodic table, the elements, but it doesn't make her any less of a physician, right? She's still a great physician. You sure? She had to get through that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I don't I don't view the class as impossible. Right? I think it's it's doable. I think I think a lot of the students have a hard time differentiating between the difficulty of you know the course. You know, chemistry is not easy. I think they might you know struggle with finding that balance between you know, difficulty and uh, efficiency of the professor of teaching the subject. I found you know for me I was deathly scared of taking chemistry. I took chemistry in high school. I'm not really sure how I passed. I did pass though. I think it was a very very bad. I did not tell you a single thing. It was the year they broke in the New York State Regents and leaked the answer key and yeah yeah <laughs> there was uh, something like that. I will say like um, based on those comments. They probably never went to your immense amount of free tutoring office hours on Sunday night, day before the test. Like I said on his comment midway through the, the class, is like, if you fail, it's on you. You don't have to be the smartest person. You just have to try. If you go to all these tutoring sessions and talk to you one-on-one or a small group, you will, I guess, at least get a C in the class, no matter what. As long as you try, do the homework. And like, there's, there's no excuse, like you said, like failing a class here when a professor actually cares about the students and just going to fail a certain amount just because. I mean, I think a great example is is Raph. Like first semester, I remember him coming into my office at office hours. I mean, you both did, but he was just like, he's like, I can't do this. He's like this. I don't know where you come up with these numbers, like how this is happening. And I think it was like exam two, he really struggled with. But then exam three or exam four, he came to my office hours and basically just like confirmed that he knew the material and he got like a 90 plus something on that exam. And like he figured it out, like he went from, you know, exam two being like, this is impossible. I can't do this to like exam four, like fully understanding. All right, this is all I have to do with the material. That was probably wrath, like halfway through the semester. Like, you know, this is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I just think clicked like it just took a little bit of time but he was able like it just you know he came to office hours religiously there for a while and it really was nice like that last time he came to office it probably was the last time he came to office hours but he just like sat there didn't ask any questions and just like had his kind of his arms crossed and was like watching me work through these problems and he was like yep like makes sense and then on that exam yeah he did really well so I just think it was it was really good to like watch that transformation of exam two. He was like, I'm going to fail this class and have to retake it to, you know, passing both semesters without a problem. Have, have your exams always been multiple choice or do you did you used to like short answer? I used to have a few short answer pre-COVID. After COVID, we didn't really want to get together and sit in a room and like grade exams. And then I just kind of kept it that way because it just. 
with so many students, it basically would be like a day of the TAs and I grading exams. So pedagogically, I like short answer questions and having you write out the steps because there's partial credit, right? You can get some credit, even if you have the incorrect final answer, if you show some of the work that you use to get there. But from a standpoint of having to process six to 800 exams and literally people hand in exams and like, when is my grade going to be posted is the first question they ask me, like as they're handing in their exam. So I'm kind of like, all right, I want to get this back to you as fast as possible because someone thinks like I can just put it to my forehead and assign a grade and there's your grade on the exam. So with the large class, I just kind of like to have that turn around and get it back to you as quick as possible so you can learn from it because we don't have time to stay on it too long. We're moving on to the next material as well. So I know we had a lot of short answers in the summer semester. What do you think about my answers? That's that's what I was going to ask too. Like kind of uh, for the short answers you get and the like outlandish responses. Like I have no like no angry. You, know. you would get people that would write you letters about please take it easy on me. Like I really need this grade. Like I'm pre med. I really need like they would write like a paragraph about how they're deserving of this on grade the test? on the test. Like in place of an answer, so the people would draw like draw pictures. Yeah. And then you get people that like over answer the question, right? Like I'm looking for like a sentence response and I open like Freddy's and it's a page and a half of like all of this writing in detail. Even mine, like while Freddy, while Freddy was taking the test, he'd be like swearing and like <laughs> fidgeting in his chair and like flipping the pages angrily. Like this is the hardest exam he's ever taken in his life. So no, it's definitely get the full spectrum of people that like absolutely don't know where to start. People that answer the question, like people that go above and beyond of like, all right, you answered the question, gave me your dissertation on that whole subject in that exam as well. So we're here, don't know where to start. Perfect answer, over answer. (laughs) (laughs) So um, our topics are pretty good today. We had a really deep dive on a lot of different things, but uh, I'll ask you a question. What is your favorite quote and why? So I came up with two. I think one we've kind of talked about a lot tonight or today is kind of, you know, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And I think we kind of that's come up in some of our discussions about, you know, how veterans returning to campus and becoming a student again and overcoming that barrier. It's a lot about mindset and how you approach that class and like doing that work and getting through that, that, you know, with the right mindset that that's possible. Uh, And then my other quote that I really always like, and it's like as an athlete, I read this in a book somewhere and it always kind of stuck with me. And so I'm a big runner. I ran high school and college and I still run today. And so it was this ultra runner. And he said, um, you don't stop running because you get old. You get old because you stop running. And I kind of like that because I just I see like friends of mine now that are you know, my age that we were all athletes together in college and they just didn't continue. And it's just kind of interesting of like how um, what I'm able to do today, like they basically see as impossible because they, they, they stopped running once we graduated. Right. And I think it's, it's the same thing with a lot of things in life. Like you're always at any age, you're always to still learn and, and stay young and learn new things as long as you keep doing that. But if you like, once you shut down, I think it gets pretty easy to stay shut down. And then it makes it harder to get started back up, whether it's running or anything else, learning something new. I mean, I think you always should be learning and doing something new. So that's where I also really enjoy it when students tell me like they can't wait to graduate and then they're done, you know, learning something as if they're never going to learn something the rest of their, their <laughs> life um like it, it it continues right like uh december or january 2020 i was trying to figure out how to have review sessions on zoom because i have again so many students they couldn't meet my in-person review sessions that i would hold in lsb you know 001 
So here I am like figuring out, okay, we can record this. We can do this on Zoom. I can make that available. And at the same time, people in the university wanted me to have, uh, they want to have an engineering program that was online for actually veterans. And part of that they needed was chemistry component. And someone in the university said, oh no, we can't, we can't teach chemistry online. And three months later, right, the whole world is online. Like we're <laughs> all working online. So it's just kind of interesting. Like here I was learning something just to make the class better, but it, like it set me up ahead. Once we switched to Zoom, it was like, all right, I was already doing this anyways and already practicing with these things. Now it could also change perspective of literally someone shutting down this program because, oh no, like chemistry, we can't do chemistry online. And then within weeks of that statement, literally everything was online. So yeah, you're always going to be learning something new. I think you should be learning something new. Wow. All those people have said, it's going to be done. And you should have told them, told them that uh, you smoked a bunch of 20 year olds in the Merc Challenge, including a barbell club president here. What was your, what's your mile time again? I mean, right now, maybe I could run a mile in like 440 or 430, something like that. Oh, insane. God, that's crazy. You definitely epitomized your last quote. So Freddie was a Navy veteran, a fine engineer, and he did a few deployments and he re-kicked ass. And Jack was a FARB in the Air Force who went to the Middle East and did uh, some pretty cool things in deployment as well. Any, any last thoughts today? I just want to thank you for coming in, Professor French. Seriously, I uh, had a lot of fun with this. I've got a billion questions that I could ask you um, that I would love to just like talk about, but I appreciate you coming in and talking with us and definitely especially being on this podcast specifically. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Dr. French, coming on. Oh, I liked your $10 million quote uh, from that last one. That was good. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good quote. Well, thank you so much, Dr. First, for coming, for uh, spending time with us and really deep dive in a bunch of different topics from genetics to vaccines. And we really appreciate it. I think we learned a lot. And thank you for caring from a veteran scholar standpoint. Thank you for really caring, caring about us and really respecting all students. And maybe that was different from other professors we had. They don't really truly respect the student the way you do. You treat everybody the same. Maybe that may be a factor in it. But uh, thank you. And I appreciate you coming on the, the 10th episode of Deep Dive. Yeah, thank you for having me, Rudy. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.